Yes, this morning I want to talk about building. And I grew up uh, here in San Diego and I'm real grateful. My dad, he's in the construction industry and we would drive around and he would point out structures and buildings and bridges and even stadiums that he played a role in building. And it's, it's been pretty cool. I now get to drive by those same things and point them out to my son. And many of them are gonna outlive us. And it's just, it's great to have joy in that. I enjoy building things as well. I'm not on his level. I'm very much an amateur in it. But uh, what, whatever skill level you have, you're in the construction business too. Building your life, building families, legacies, and my prayer is this, that we would support and be a part of what God is building here in East County as well. You know, some things we build for fun, but some things we build and they define who we are and what we're gonna leave behind. And that's, that's the type of building I wanna talk about this morning. We're gonna be in the book of Nehemiah. If you guys have your Bibles, you can turn there, Nehemiah 1. Uh, if you uh, want to also open it up on the app, we have a good amount of notes you can track there. But Nehemiah would not have considered himself a builder. He was a cupbearer to the king. He worked in the palace. And yet, as we'll see, the Lord put on his heart this calling to build a wall around Jerusalem. And through that, he brought hope to God's people. And eventually, a revival broke out. And I don't really want to look at what he built but I wanna look at how did he position himself to hear from the Lord and respond in a way to be used the way he was. So if you will join me, we're gonna start reading in verse one of chapter one of Nehemiah. It says, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, that's not how you pronounce it. I looked it up, I can't do it, so we're just going with it. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity in about Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Sorry, I read that wrong. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and his gates are burned with fire. And in verse four, it says, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. That's a heavy response. Likely one chief fans and Swifties will know next week. But, um, <laughs> but in, in all reality, we don't respond like that to much of anything. I can't think of a time in my life where I, I was hit with some news where I sat and mourned and wept for days. Nehemiah is really being hit hard there. And we see right away, right in the beginning of this chapter, that Nehemiah is burdened and he's overwhelmed here because he cares for what God cares for. Let me give you some context. Walls and gates in ancient times were keys to peace and prosperity. If, if you lived within a city or even right outside of it and the walls were broken down, then you could not establish yourself. Every time you started to build a home, raiders would come in and knock it down. If you had anything worth stealing, they would come in and steal it. Anyone who would be threatened by your prosperity or you getting ahead, they would come in and prevent it. And that's the same with businesses and farms. 
You needed walls for security. Gates allowed a city to control who came in and out. It would allow a city to control, have security and control trade and immigration. With broken down walls and gates on fire, Jerusalem had no hope. And this just wasn't any city. It was the city of God. It was the capital of his people. And in, unless something changed, they would continue to struggle. I bring that up because our walls and gates have fallen as well in our culture. I'm not talking about physical walls. There's a conversation to be had there, not, not this morning. But something really so much more important than that. In our culture, we have seen our understanding of God and of truth completely break down. We've seen the institution of family and the God-directed order for education. It's on fire. And because of that, we're, we're bearing the fruit. We're eating the fruit of that catastrophe. We see just fatherlessness wherever you look. Divorce is rampant. We see brokenness with addiction and homelessness affecting most of us. We see lawlessness and theft and dishonesty in our stores, embrace of sin and the celebration of it. We see hate and division. All of this is happening in our community, in our culture, and behind each of those issues are people who are struggling because these walls and gates have broken down. And the question for us is, are we gonna care for what God cares for? Are we gonna be burdened by the things that burden the Lord? And Nehemiah here, he cares for what God cares for, and it's despite some pretty sizable distractions and obstacles that can get in the way. If you read Nehemiah 1 through 4 and you just then keep reading, verse 5, 6, 7, 8, you, you likely won't skip a beat. But there's some context here that I think adds some important aspects to, to what's happening. You see, Nehemiah, he said in verse 1 that as he hears this news, he's in Susa. Susa is not Jerusalem. In fact, Susa is the capital of Persia, which is 750 miles away. That's a long distance today here to Salt Lake City. But in that times, it was like a one to three month journey. He, he's pretty far removed from what's happening there. But more than just a distance, he hasn't lived there and his family hasn't lived in Jerusalem for 150 years. See, what happened was Nehemiah's great, 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 great grandfather, I'm pretty sure I did my math right, lived in Jerusalem in a time when the people there did not honor God. And because of that, God used Babylon. They came in to carry out judgment and they destroyed the city and they carried off with them into captivity all of God's people and they spread them out throughout Babylon. And Nehemiah's ancestors were some of those who were carried off. But it's been so long since that happened that Babylon doesn't even exist anymore. Babylon was, was conquered by Persia and now Nehemiah lives in the capital of the country which destroyed the country that destroyed his country. It's been a long time. And yet what we see here is Nehemiah is moved. He's emotionally moved by something he's physically very removed from. That's not the only obstacle. As I told you, Nehemiah is cupbearer to the king. This is a, a really important position within a kingdom. 
You see, the king was always worried about people trying to kill him, assassinate him, or poison him. So he would find a trusted official, and he would put them in this position of cupbearer, and whenever he had a drink or his guests had drinks, the cupbearer was the one who poured those drinks and brought it to him. And it was a, a position of great influence. In all of Persia, Nehemiah was at the top. He lived in the palace or right next to it. He worked in the palace. You know he was taken care of. And so he, he not only is removed from the situation happening in Jerusalem, but he is very occupied. There's plenty in front of him that would keep him busy. And yet, he did not overlook the perils of God's people. In fact, I wonder if part of his mourning and weeping was because he understood there's no going back to not knowing what's going on, to unhearing of the situation there. He didn't let those things get in the way of knowing what was happening. And that's important because we can very easily do the same thing. There are problems happening in our community, in our culture. There are walls and gates that have fallen down and we can just keep our heads down in the pursuit of trying to get ahead. We live in San Diego, it is hard here. It is hard to get ahead and it's so simple for us to say, I'm gonna keep my head down and I just gotta get through school. And then I just got to get through the beginning of my career and the beginning of establishing my family and getting a home. And before you know it, years have passed where you said, Lord, I want to get involved. I want to do something. I want to care for what you care for. But you get caught up in just this rat race of always trying to push ahead. That's not the only thing. We have so many opportunities to entertain ourselves. You can find a new TV show every day for the rest of your life. That's not it. Man, we have hobbies. And, and it's so easy for us to say, I need to work hard so I can buy this desert toy so I can find time to go out to the desert and break it so then I can come back and work hard so I could repair it to go break it again. Like that's just an ongoing cycle. And desert people, it's not just you. It's the, the golfers and the hunters and the fisher and the surfer. Like it's all of us. It's just easy to do. All of these things can rob us of seeing the areas in our culture that need repairing, that need attention. And all of this begs the question, and maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves, but why should we care? Isn't there already enough on our plates already? But to be a people God could build with, to be people like Nehemiah, we need to look out and seek that which is in need of healing and fixing and restoring. And we do that because we follow a God who has sought us out to do that work in us. Philippians 2, verse 7 says, Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I mean, Nehemiah had it nice, Jesus had it better. Jesus was up in heaven, and th that's as good as it gets. And yet he looked down and he saw that something was off. We were separated from the Father. And so he left heaven and walked as man. And he didn't just walk as man, but he walked to the, to the cross and gave his life for us so that we could once again 
be made whole and know his freedom and know his peace. We could be restored. The way it's put in 1 Corinthians 6 is this. Verse 9 reads, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Guys, we were a hot mess. We, I mean, we were in need of some serious help. And the Lord saw that. And in fact, it, as we read that verse, it's, it's likely that you, like one of those words stood out to you. In the first part of it, you, you just keyed in on one of those words and we all picked a different one right? Idolaters, adulterers, effeminate. Like we all pick something else, but don't focus there. Focus on the beginning of verse 11 where it says, and such were some of you. Because however we were, God came so that we didn't have to stay there. And it's because of that very reason we can seek out that same sort of healing in our communities, in our culture. We can seek out the areas where our walls have broken down and the gates are on fire and we could do something about it. But we need to care for the things God cares for. Nehemiah understood that. But the next step could still be overwhelming. You know, it says in verse three here, Nehemiah chapter one, that the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down as its gates are burned with fire. And I can't imagine Nehemiah got that word and goes, oh, great. I've been working on my wall building. I've been watching all the YouTube videos. I'm ready to go. He doesn't. He gets this word, and this is beyond what he can do. He's not equipped to take on this challenge. It is far away, and it is beyond his skill level. And we can respond the, the very same way. We could see the issues in our culture, the areas where our culture's walls have fallen down and think, man, something needs to be done, and I can't do it. I don't know how to do it. I don't know the first step. And it is so key for us to follow Nehemiah's example because he gets this word, he's burdened by it, but then he allowed the Lord to define it. He went to God to see the struggle from God's perspective. Nehemiah would have known what Israel once was, fierce under King David, feared by all the countries around. Uh, an example of prosperity under Solomon where people traveled to see his wisdom and wealth. He would have known that this was a country God called into existence, the, the nation where God chose to dwell and through whom's prophets he chose to speak. Like Nehemiah would have known what Israel once was, but also he would have known the promises of God and where he wanted to take it. You see, a long time before Nehemiah, Moses spoke about the situation that they found themselves in. And if you go to Deuteronomy, it's the last book that Moses wrote, chapter 30, verse three, it says this. 
the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. See, for Nehemiah and God's people, their hope was in that promise. And so however big the struggle was, however big of a task it would take to start repairing those walls, they knew that God was on their side. He promised it would be done. And we can look back at in, in our culture, in our communities and think, man, we have fallen. And we can wonder how in the world are we gonna get to where we want to be? The question is, do we believe that the Lord will bring us there and that he will use us to build that up, to be a part of bringing what he wants to bring into our communities. Look, we can't take every promise God gave Israel and apply it directly to us. We can see how God moved and we can learn about his character in that. But then we can look at his word and see what he has promised for us. It says the son of man came to seek and save the lost. And we have to know that as we labor with Christ, we will prevail because he promises in Romans 8, 31, what, it says, what then shall we say if God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who's gonna challenge them? God is the one who justifies who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and I love this, who also intercedes for us. So whatever perspective you have, however big the challenge may appear, I want you to know that the Lord sees the situation as well. And we get to see it as we approach him, we gotta see it from his perspective, knowing that he is interceding for us. This is, how, this is what that looks like, practically. There was this lady who used to work at Youth Venture. She was at a shift and two boys started to fight. And she had to get in the middle of the shift and pull them apart and she was cussed out and chewed out because of it. And so later on, Neil shows up and, and she goes, Neil, I quit. I'm done. These punks, uh, I can't do it anymore. And Neil said, look, I understand. I, I receive that. You can step down if you want. But let me give you a different perspective. You see, these kids fight because that's what's been modeled for them. That's all they've ever known. When someone disrespects you, you gotta level up and disrespect them more. If they throw a punch, you throw a harder one. That's the life they know. And we are here because we get to give them a different perspective. We get to model something different and show them a different way. You see, all of a sudden, those punks that are just stuck in their ways and are mean and cruel and disrespectful, all of a sudden, you see them differently. 
because you, you see that you're in a place where you have something to offer because God has given that to you. He's moved in your life and now you can be an example and hopefully bring them out of it. That lady, her perspective changed. It was still the same problem, but she had a new strength because the solution and the perspective was brought to her by God. She stayed working for many, many years. We gotta care about what God cares for. We need to see it from his perspective. And then we need to go to him to seek out the proper response. I love in verse four, we only read half of it. Nehemiah 1.4 says, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah is stirred emotionally. He's weeping and he's mourning for days, but he doesn't let that emotion be what directs him. He doesn't let that emotion run ahead of him and run ahead of God. We do that so easily where we can get angry or we can just be burdened with sadness and then we wanna move, we wanna jump, but we forget to let bring God with us. And we let the emotion be what guides us. You see, passion, raw emotion directed by God becomes compassion that leads to healing. But passion directed by our flesh brings breakdown and chaos. And we see this. There are people who care about what's going on in our community. They're, they want to be a part of the solution, but they become angry. In fact, they become these angry, red-pilled cynics who just want to go smash down more walls. Or on the other side of things, man, you see you're burdened by the, the hurt and the loss and you want to love people, but you, you're so worried about offending them or bringing the truth or hurting them even a little bit that you become these woke, bleeding hearts that love people to hell. And both of those things are emotion guiding us and not God. But here, Nehemiah, he says, I see the problem, I care about the problem, and God, may you give me the direction on what to do and where to go. And so he starts fasting and he starts praying. And what I love about Nehemiah chapter one is he gives us the prayer. And if you're at home and you, you don't know what to pray, I don't know how to pray, Go to the scriptures and find faithful men and women who have given us their prayers and use those as models, as examples. Here in verse five, we're gonna start Nehemiah's prayer. And it says, he begins with this. I said, I beseech you, Lord. That means I beg you, I fervently and urgently ask you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let me jump in real quick. He's mourning, he's weeping. The situation he's facing is big, bigger than he can handle on his own. And yet he begins this prayer by declaring the awesomeness of God. He's not gonna let the situation change his view of God. And we must be people who do the same. Our God is good, always. Verse six continues. He says, let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I'm praying before you now day and night on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments nor the statutes, 
statutes nor the ordinances which you have commanded your servant Moses. Here, Nehemiah doesn't play the blame game, doesn't play the victim game. He says, we are here because we have sinned. And I recognize the, the ways people before me have erred, and I repent for the areas where I have played a role in that, where I have sinned. The Lord can do some incredible things with the heart of a repentant follower. Verse eight, he continues. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have not been scattered were in the most remote parts of the heavens, I will gather them from there and I will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. There are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. You have to forgive me, this being my third service. Did we read the Deuteronomy verse? All right. Then. You guys recognize that he was quoting some of that in there, right? I love this part of the prayer because Nehemiah is petitioning God to do what he said he would do. Saying, God, you promised this. Now, may you bring it to pass. And this is our example. We get to do this. We can say, God, in 1 John 3, 8, you said you came to destroy the works of Satan. And I can show you some. It's time to break that down. We get to prayer, pray when God says, hey, look, in Luke 4, you said you came to, to bind up the brokenhearted and bring sight to the blind. I know people who are in need of comforting. Go, Lord, comfort them. I know those who are lost and are in need of a shepherd. Lord, may you provide that and may I be a part of it. We can use God's word and come to him and say, God, you said that you would do this. Now, may you move and do the very thing you said you would do. Do you know that God cares for our community? He cares for the areas where the walls have been broken down and the gates are on fire. He came to seek and save the lost. And so as we labor with him, we're la we are laboring with him. He intercedes on our behalf. Nehemiah doesn't end there. In verse 11, he wraps up this prayer. And he says, O Lord, I beseech you, May your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant, that's him, successful today and grant him compassion before this man. The man he's referring to there is the king. Because in this prayer, we see Nehemiah declare the goodness of God and repent seek out the welfare of God's people through the promises he gave. And then he says, and Lord, may you bring about that solution and may you use me to be a part of it. I'm willing to be someone you build with. And he knows now that he needs to take a step of faith. You see, we have to seek out the areas in our culture that need repairing. We need to seek God to frame those situations, but then we need to seek his direction and be willing to be a part of that solution. Chapter one ends with these 
eight words. He says, now I was cupbearer to the king. And the very position that if could have kept Nehemiah from caring about all of this, now becomes a means by which the Lord is going to bring about the solution. But Nehemiah has to confront the king. Chapter two, verse one, starts with this. It came about in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, why is your face sad though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I wanna point out two things about these verses. First off, it says we're in the month Nisan. When we began this story, we were in the month Kislev. That's November, December. Now we're in March, April. It's been four months. And I just point that out because Nehemiah has been praying and seeking the Lord. He hasn't jumped ahead. He has sought God's solution in God's timing. But now he's facing, he's confronted with saying something because he's been sad in front of the king. In this day and age, it was a capital offense to be sad in front of the king. Neil has tried to implement this rule this past year and it, um, it's like easy there, easy. Uh, it, it's, it is kind of comical. These kings, they, they treated like they believed they were gods. And so for you to come before them with any sort of sadness and possibly damper their day or affect them, it, it was, you could be hung for it or hanged for it, whatever. Well, I don't know why we do that, but we do it hanged. But, um, and so Nehemiah is in this situation and the king sees that he's sad and he's very much afraid, but there's no going back. The story picks up in verse three and it says, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? He's not mincing words there. And the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs that I may rebuild it. He says, if your servant has found favor, the Lord does bring favor to Nehemiah here. We don't have time to finish the story. Um, spoiler alert, uh, Nehemiah is successful. What happens is the king writes him a letter that grants him safe passage all the way to Jerusalem. More than that, the king says, I'm to provide all the materials so you could build that wall. Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem and he shares his vision with the people there and they rally behind that vision. And opposition comes. It, it's not all like rainbows and butterflies from there. It, in fact, there's this great verse in, I believe, chapter three, where it talks about them building the wall with a tool in one hand and a sword in another. People don't want this wall to be successful, but the Lord is behind it, and they build it in 52 days. More than that, people get word and they start returning. Thousands. More than that, their hope in God is renewed and a great revival breaks out, restoring that country. And it's all because this cupbearer cared for what God cares for, sought his direction, 
and was willing to step out in faith to build it. The question for us in our culture where our walls have fallen is what are we called to build? And we can get caught up thinking, man, I need to repair Christianity to look like what it looked like before COVID or in this specific time period or all that. And I would say slow down on all that. Let's go, go before God and ask him, what is it that he wants you to be a part of? What solutions does he want to bring through you? Because we are called to build up Christ and the people that are hurting and in the institutions that he has ordained. And I want to give you some examples of that. You know, Mark Hoffman years ago saw a bunch of young people who are living without purpose. There was a problem. And he went before the Lord in prayer and God gave him the vision for youth venture. So he stood he, he took a step of faith and he shared that vision with others and he started building this ministry with many of you. And because of that, 33 years later, thousands and thousands of young people have been changed and impacted for Christ because of this, this problem he saw, a vision he got, and a willingness to step out. And, and in that, you need to know, Nehemiah had the vision, but he didn't build the wall alone. And Mark Hoffman had this vision, but he didn't build the ministry alone. And you might not be Nehemiah or Mark Hoffman, but you might be someone that is gonna join the vision God has given to someone else to build the ministry or restore the walls we need restored here in our community. I wanna give you one more example. Mary Rothman, if you don't know her name, she used to cut hair. Her and her husband had a bunch of salons. And she's walking with one of her friends and her friend was a teacher. And they're just on a walk and their teacher friend talks about these students in her class that had hygiene issues, dealt with lice. And Mary thought, I, I can do something about that. I, I can teach them hygiene. And she goes, and then I can sprinkle in some Bible verses and teach them about God and at the same time. So she started doing that and, and started this after school club and then it turned into two, and then three, and all of our higher ground clubs and our sunshine clubs came out of that vision. And, and here's one of the things I love. Hygiene issues aren't this giant wall that's broken down in our community, but it's the fruit of those walls that are broken down. And it's through that that she was able to bless thousands and thousands of people, and others joined in, and I'm part of the fruit of that. I'm part of the fruit of these visions. Amen. We're called to join God and labor with him in restoring the walls that have broken down in our communities. And the question is, are we gonna care for what God cares for? And are we gonna seek him to do something about it? 